If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com. Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to Facing the Canon. My guest on the programme is Phil Chadder, prison chaplain. Phil Chadder, welcome to Facing the Canon. John, thank you very much for having me. It's great. We're both members of the same church. <laughs> and it's we are. lovely. We now, are. now you, Phil, you weren't brought up as a Christian. Well, I was brought up in a Christian home. My parents went to sort of middle of the road Anglican church, where they still go. But I was very spiritually deaf. And at the age of 12, I was given the choice of whether I continue going to church or not. And I decided not, probably much to the joy of the vicar, because I had been kind of thrown out of of, of children's church on a couple of occasions for, for doing unthinkable things. So I, from the age of 12 onwards, I had very little Christian contact at all. Now that phrase, spiritually deaf, um, why were you spiritually deaf? Often when I speak to people and they say, well, I, I, I'd never heard the gospel before, and then someone like J. John spoke and, and, I, and I got it. I often think that they, they've heard the gospel a lot of times, but for, the, for someone to hear the gospel and act on it, it, it takes the work of the Spirit. Yes. So no doubt I'd heard the gospel umpteen times. It's just it hadn't yet been my time for, for the Lord to, to wake me up. But, but later on, you went to Exeter University. Went to Exeter University. And I think that, that's where you first met your wife. I did. First and day of the first term, met Lou, yes. And that's where you encounter Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. So Lou had a group of Christian friends. I'd never met people my own age who believed in Jesus. I thought that people, I thought that church was a nice club that people would go to. Didn't realise that, that people built their entire lives around their faith in Jesus. And so I just argued with them. For the first year, I just argued, and I like a good argument. And gradually I was beginning to think, do you know what, my arguments are not as good as their arguments. And then there was a mission. Uh, there was a lovely mission with David Jackman came to, to speak for a whole week. And each week it, it was as though he was speaking to me. And at the end, someone from UCCF came to me and said, well, why aren't you? And I said, I just don't know. And so they helped me to, to give my life to Christ at that point. And what effect, what difference did that make to you? Knowing Jesus, I think, gives us a fresh purpose for life. I think I, I was aware that my life was full of stuff that it shouldn't have been full of. And so I was aware of my sin. I was also aware that I was chasing an image that wasn't really me. And in fact, a friend of mine who, who wasn't a Christian said to Lou of me after I'd come to Christ that he's become more Phil than he was before, yes. which I think was a nice thing to, to say. 
But coming to know Jesus also turned everything that I knew on my head, but not in a way that destroyed anything. So I'd always wanted to work with offenders. When I was a teenager, my we had a family next door and, and their father got sent to prison for a very long time. And so I'd already started thinking about criminal justice and I wanted to become a probation officer. And I, having come to Christ, I still wanted to do that, but it, rather than it being a kind of a sociological thing, I wanted to get alongside people who needed um, to know that they were loved, that there's a new purpose that they, that they could have in their life. So coming to know Jesus, yes, you asked what the effect was. I think I became a new Phil, the, the Phil that God was beginning to restore, and that restoration process is still ongoing, but with a sense of purpose that for, for the rest of my life. The, the new born again Phil. The new born again Phil. <laughs> and you did go into the probation office uh, and become a probation officer. Yes. Uh, wh- what is a probation officer? What do they do? In those days, the motto for probation service was to advise, assist and befriend. And there's a number of things that probation officers do. A generic um, probation officer would have a caseload. And on that caseload, they would have people that they were, you know, when you hear on the news that someone's been convicted of an, of an offence and they'll be sentenced in three weeks. That's so that a probation officer can write a report or a psychiatrist very often. So I would write those sorts of reports. I would then have people coming to see me instead of having to go to prison. And you'd have to ask them which was worse, but they, they, <laughs> they would have to come and see me. And then I'd have some people who were in prison as part of my through care case, and then I, I would I would supervise them on their parole. So that's generally the work of a probation officer. But then after that, you began the process of um, becoming an ordained minister in the Church of England um, and then a chaplain in a prison. Yes. So what led you to become a chaplain in a prison? Well, I would look at my clients and they would know that I was a Christian and maybe as a probation officer, maybe they would raise the odd question. about my faith and, and I could talk about it in, in an appropriate manner, but it wasn't my starting point and it would abuse my role if I'd made it my starting point. And I recognise that what people need is Jesus, not good social work. And I know there's lots of fantastic Christian probation officers and, and I, I want them to stay and, and, and do that. But for me, it was to, to leave, to train, and then to go back to work with the same group of people, but where I could talk about Jesus right from the get go. And so going into your first prison as a prison chaplain, uh, was that a culture shock to you? It was in some senses in that I'd, I'd, I'd visited lots of prisons as a probation officer, just uh, in, in legal visits, but I hadn't been part of the prison community. And, and so I had a lot to learn. I knew that in terms of getting to know the clientele, that wasn't much of a, a challenge, but the real challenge was understanding my part as a chaplain within the kind of global village that is a, a, a prison. Uh, and, but it's a, it, there's another culture there, isn't there, yeah. that you've got to uh, adapt to? Yes, definitely. And what, from your experience of having done prison chaplaincy for many, many years, um, are people warm to people like you as chaplains? Are there people who are hostile towards you? I would say by and large people are very positive towards uh, chaplains. And I'm thinking about staff and prisoners. I think 
Prison is a very pressured environment in which to work, and so staff, it's a very, very tough job. I think we don't get to see what prison officers do enough because they're, what they do is behind walls. But prison officers work with some of the most difficult characters in our society and do so with great professionalism and care. And it's very helpful for them to have someone who understands the system, has a slightly different role within it. So a lot of chaplains' time is spent talking to staff, finding out how they're getting on, listening to them, listening to how, you know, getting involved in their lives. In recent uh, weeks, Phil, uh, we've had a number of guests and uh, that I've interviewed who actually came to faith in prison and uh, were absolutely transformed. Now, have you seen that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And it's a joy. In a sense, that's the easy bit, John, because people come to Christ in prison or come come to, to faith in prison. And in that environment, there's a, it, chaplaincy is one part of a caring tapestry in a prison. So the officers are part of it, the, the governors are part of it, you've got health care, you've got education, you've got gym. So it, it, in one sense, it's an environment where there's an awful lot of people looking out for them. People come to faith in Christ in prison, the challenge is when they get out, because they'll be met at the, you know, people would leave HMP Brixton, the huge vehicle lock would open up, they would go in it, they would double check that we're releasing the right person, the next vehicle lock would open out, they go on to Jeb Avenue, and they would be met by their dealer. And the dealer would say, well, ha- have the first one on me. Yeah. And they'd be straight back into that cycle. So the challenge is helping people to sustain their faith, to become part of a whole new community on release. Yes, it's a bigger picture, absolutely. But are there any stories that come to mind of various people in prison where you've seen a transformation because of Jesus that you can tell us? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of my, uh, there's a few that I, I'm able to keep Please in touch do. with now. I mean, there's a, there's a, I'll change their names, but yes. there's, a, there's a chap called um, Dave who, he was, he was a proper South London gangster. He helped Guy Ritchie on his gangster films as the script advisor before he came into Brixton. He was so transformed. I remember when I picture him, and I still see him for, for coffee from time to time, he, he, was st- he would stand in the front row in Brixton prison and, and as we would be singing hymns, there would be tears pouring down his face. And because he could do that, it gave permission for a whole lot of other people who would be thinking, you know, can I, is this Christianity thing just for kind of the, the weaker prisoners? Having him nail his colours to the mast was extraordinary. And when he came out, he set up a film company. He started to train youngsters into how to, how to make films. And he's continued to, to um, live the Christian life. It was really funny because we, I would, quite often he would come up to Brixton uh, and we would go to a cafe for lunch after he, way after he got out of prison. And I would say, David, it would be wonderful if you would come into the prison to, uh, to share your testimony. Could you do that? And he said, I can't. I said, why can't you? And he says, because I can't say the name Jesus without crying. Oh. <laughs> so I said, OK, well, look, just as soon as you can, yes. then come into the prison. 
So one Thursday lunchtime, he would, we, we usually do on a Thursday, he would come up and he said, I'm ready. And I said, ready for what? And he said, I, I can do it. I can, I, can, I can say Jesus without crying. I said, okay, Sunday, come in on Sunday. Fine, so we organised this. I go back into the prison. I go to the number one governor and say, do you remember this prisoner? Oh yeah, no, yeah, I remember him. I want him to come back and speak to the guys at chapel on Sunday morning. Are you happy for to, to sign the gate pass to get, of course I am. This is exactly what prisoners need, is to hear from somebody who's sat where they sat. So in he comes, he delivers his, his talk, does his testimony. You could hear a pin drop. Afterwards, one of the members of staff who wasn't, doesn't normally come into because at a chapel service you've got staff dotted around all sure. the edges just in case things sort of um, kick off. And one of those members of staff, chap in his early 60s, came up to him and said, you saved my life. And they said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, when I was on Sea Wing, I got attacked by an enormous prisoner and I was in fear of my life. And you came up, popped him on the ground, held, didn't hurt him, but held him there until other staff could come and take him off to the segregation unit. You saved my life. And it was just wonderful for him. He was terrified. He's, when we got back out of the prison after this, he said, I was, my biggest fear was I would never get out again. So there's, there's so many stories I could tell you like that. There's a chap who... Yes, now, please do. I love these stories because they really do give you a faith lift, don't they? Yes, Go on, they t- do. Tell us one or two more. I'll tell you about Barry. Barry came to us from another prison. He was desperately upset, desperately sad. One of the things that chaplains do is to go and visit prisoners within 24 hours of their reception into the prison to check that they're okay and to, to um, just generally make sure that they're, that they're feeling all right and that we can put things in place if they're not. And Barry was all over the place. And I happened to have a, a vacancy for a chapel orderly, so I said, and they're, they're prisoners who are paid to, to help, that their job is to come and clean the chapel and to um, make the tea for Bible study groups and things. And uh, so he said, yeah, I'll come. So he had, had this little job. And of course, he's got the whole chaplaincy team looking after him, showing him love and care. And he's one of the most servant-hearted people I've ever met. All he would ever say is, I just love to serve. I just love to serve. He became a peer mentor on my Faith in the Future group. He, and when he got out of, out of prison, he, he started to work for a homeless agency because he just wanted to help. He wasn't paid, he just wanted to do it. For a long time, there was a bit of an immigration problem going on, but that got resolved. And the joy now is that when he emails me to say, how are you, Phil? He does so from a government email address. .gov.uk, and I just tease him about that, Rothner. It's just wonderful to see. In fact, he's thinking about ordination. And I took him along to Oak Hill, which is my college, for an open day, just because he'd obviously never bothered with school, um, just to show him what a lecture would be like and whether it's the sort of thing that he could, he would want to do. So to see lives transformed is amazing. 
Or there's Kevin, who used to be, he used to sell guns and drugs, and he was very good at it, and he had quite a little... So he was very successful. He was very successful. Selling guns. Very guns and drugs. Then he realised that there was a slight hole in his business plan when he started getting shot at by the guns that he had sold. And thankfully for him, the police raided him, and he then served a sentence. And I used to have this little preaching school in Brixton, so I would with some of the really keen Christians, I would say, look, this is is the passage I'm going to be speaking on in in a month's time. I want you to get to know the passage. And I would do the first part of the sermon and they would do the application, what this means to to a prisoner. And we did, I think it was Psalm 13, How Long, O Lord? And this chap had actually finished his sentence but was stuck with us on an immigration hold. And so he had no idea how long he was going to uh, remain in prison. So I said, let's do this psalm together. And it got to the application and he did it beautifully about waiting on the Lord and, and trusting in him. And when it got to the end, I said, well, I haven't, didn't think about asking this question, but I'm going to ask him this question. He had two daughters, lovely uh, girls. I said, if you had the choice of if I could, I can't, but if I could walk you to the prison and let you go home, but you would do that without knowing Jesus, or you could serve however long it's going to be until your immigration is resolved, and that could be years, and you would know Jesus, which would you like? And he said, can I have both? And I said, no, you can't have both. It's got to be one or the other. <laughs> and he said in front of the whole chapel, well, I would stay here knowing Jesus. Incredible. And when he got out, he married the mother of his girls and, uh, and his, his life has transformed. Transformed. And isn't it a joy to be involved in a ministry that, that you just, all we do is, is sow the seed and watch what Absolutely. the Lord does. The, the, the prison staff and the governors, when they see this, um, what's their perspective on it? It's very easy in a prison to get quite... Um, quite cynical you, you, because people do come to chapel to do their drug deals and yes yeah, so there are other things going other, on do you know I, re- I don't know if you know this Phil but uh, when I finished theological college um, I worked in Northern Ireland oh, and that was 1980-81 and I was on the chaplaincy team at Crumlin Row Prison so I did that really? for a whole year and the, de- the chapel was <laughs> packed <laughs> And, and that was during the height of the problems. Goodness, and, yeah. um, but there were, you could, prisoners could connect with prisoners in the chapel, but they couldn't any other yeah, time during yeah. the week. Yes. That's the thing. So there are other things going on. Yeah. It's very easy for that to happen. We watch it and we, we kind of disrupt it as best as, best as we can. And, but so understandably, there is a kind of a sense, oh no, here comes a chapel service. This is, this could, this is, we riots start in chapels and so yeah. you know, there's a gen understandably a bit of tension around when when there's a large group of of prisoners gathering but prison officers are the best judges of whether someone is changed or not yeah so i very often have someone in a bible study who'd be making all the right noises to me and and so i would go to the prison officer and say look he's, he's making great progress in my study how is he with you yeah Oh, he's still a pain in the neck. Yeah. I could then go and see <laughs> yes. him and say, hang on a minute. 
you, you say all the right things to me, but unless it makes a difference to that number of staff, then I'm not. I, then you're just playing a game. Uh, but that feel is true for all of us, isn't of it? it? It's is. true for all the viewers who are listening in now. Uh, our belief has to match our behaviour, yes. doesn't it? Or our behaviour must match our belief. Yes, we've got to practice what we preach. Exactly, and and we've got to put the cart after the horse, haven't we? It's to be what we already are in Jesus. It's not to become something so that he will accept us, but it's to actually live up to what he's already declared us to be in him. Yeah. The, uh, the, what's just come to my mind is Jesus on the cross, uh, Phil, uh, and then with the two other men who are being crucified as criminals either side of him. And, and Jesus offers forgiveness to the man who says, will you remember me in your kingdom? Yes. And um, yes, if someone is in prison for various crimes, they're not disqualified no. from receiving that forgiveness. I think it's a wonderful encouragement that the first person who put his trust in the crucified Jesus was a, was a, a criminal. And time and time again, when people come into prison as volunteers and just try it out, that one of the first things they say, well, these people are just like us. And you say, yeah, exactly. Very often people have had a, a start in life that, you know, I was blessed with a very happy and loving home. And, and, but I know that if I hadn't been, or if circumstances had played out differently, I would have, I would have been in prison. I, mean, I, was, I was born about 70 yards behind Brixton Prison. And I think the only surprise to my parents' friends was that I was a chaplain there rather than a, rather than a resident. So, yes, I think we have a, almost a fantasy that prison is full of people who are incredibly difficult. And of course, people, people can, can, can be very difficult. But by and large, when you, as soon as you scratch the surface of a life, you begin to realise they have exactly the same needs, hopes, fears, and we know that all of those are met in Jesus. Uh, do you have any um, uh, stats regarding, uh, obviously pre-COVID and post-COVID, not the COVID season, about visiting? Uh, do prisoners get visits? Are, are there prisoners that don't get any visits? Yes, mo most prisoners, or all prisoners can have visits. It, it's not, when somebody breaks a prison rule and they face adjudication, there are some things that can be taken away, but, but visits can't ever be taken away. The, the worst that can happen is that you can be put on closed visits. So if we were on a closed visit, there'd be a big sheet of perspex in between us and we wouldn't have any physical contact. Most prisoners will receive visits. Actually, chaplaincy um, work very closely with the National Association of Official Prison Visitors, and we, they often are looked after under the chaplaincy umbrella. And they're, they're people who come in to, to spend time, to befriend people who wouldn't otherwise have visits and who want them. Some people find receiving visits incredibly stressful. Uh, saying goodbye. Saying goodbye, having having a visit where there's lots of other people visiting and you feel nervous about, um, often they don't want their children to come in because they don't want them to see the environment that they're, that they're living in. They feel that they're protecting the person. 
often they have acknowledged that that to visit them, a member of their family, the family has to travel for umpteen hours and it costs them money even though there is support available to help people with the costs. So visits I think are obviously a blessing but they are a mixed blessing. People very often feel low after the visit because if if you or I were, were spent spent some time with us and, and with, 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 a, with a loved one and it didn't quite go as according to plan we could tomorrow we could put that right. Yeah, it could resolve um, it. Or... But, but for, for a prisoner, there's a long wait. Um, so it can be very painful. What would you say, Phil, um, to our viewers who might have a relative, uh, a friend, a spouse in prison? What advice would you give us? With that person to both understand that what they're going through is, a, is an enormous challenge, but also to help them to broaden their perspective of what's happening for you on the outside. Very often prison can make the most selfless person very selfish. And so I think on your visits to help the person to understand the bigger picture of what's happening in your life. I think it's better, important, don't shield them from that. I think it's important for them to know that. But help them to prepare for their release, ask them which courses they're going on, ask them, encourage them to take all the steps that they can be taking in order to um, to thrive. And if finance is difficult because you've lost perhaps the breadwinner, I would really encourage you to connect with people like Christians Against Poverty who are fantastic about drawing alongside yes. you and getting help um, so that you can look after your needs while while your loved one is inside. So uh, it's important to write to family and friends who are in prison. Yeah. It's important to visit. Um, so is it basically writing and visiting? Writing, visiting. You, there is now an email a prisoner scheme. So you can you can just that's obviously quicker. Um, you can't phone somebody in prison. They need to phone you. Um, I think agree agree with your loved one that the best sort of time to receive the phone call because if they have an opportunity to call you, it's best to do it at the time where you're not doing the bath routine and everything and it feels very short conversation and then the prisoner's going off thinking, oh, they're not interested in me anymore. So it's just important to, to, to just think the, those things through to, to agree how you can support each other because it's a two-way process, that support. Um, as you think of prisons, prisoners, uh, what scripture, scriptures come to your mind? Scripture that always, that I, I had it on my desk when I was a probation officer, and I still have it, is Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where it says that we are God's workmanship. And I always remind myself that that workmanship can also mean masterpiece, that, that you or I have been made by God with his masterpieces. You sometimes hear, don't you, on the news of, of a, some tatty old painting found in someone's loft and, and they, they've had paint pots on it for years and, and, and then someone spots it and it's not something that's tatty and useless, it's actually a masterpiece. In need of restoration, but a masterpiece. And so I have that passage sort of in my mind all the time because when I'm with somebody who might be aggressive or abrasive or difficult I'm thinking you're a masterpiece and 
I can't restore you, but I can introduce you to someone who can. And with a touch of the Lord Jesus, that person can be transformed and not just in a temporary get them through the sentence way, but transformed for life. Amen, Phil. It's been a joy to have you on Facing the Canon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you very much. I hope that has inspired you. It encouraged me hearing those wonderful redemptive stories of transformation in the lives of people. And if you know anyone who is in prison, do write to them, do visit them. Let's pray for their redemption. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.